Matthew chapter 16, beginning to read in verse uh, 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. You may be seated. Jesus taught the importance of building on good foundations, living our lives on um, spots or places that have a solid foundation. In Matthew chapter 7, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked about two men who built homes. And as the story goes on, we discover that the one was built on sand and the other was built on the rock or down to the rock. I think it's possible that these houses may have been side by side. If they were, you could have driven past these houses on Sunset Avenue on a given sunny Sunday afternoon and there probably would have been little difference in the two houses. My guess is that they were both had curb appeal, but the difference was what was underneath these houses, the foundation. And that was exposed by storms, adversity, suffering. And Jesus put it this way. He said, the rains descended, the winds blew, and the floods came and beat upon that house, and it fell. He's talking about the one without the foundation. And he says, the fall of that house was great. When we were planning our house building project in 2018 and 19, we were um, talking to builders and particularly one builder and, and an architect. And as we would go along, we would sometimes discuss um, various possibilities uh, for some of our um, dreams or uh, things that we thought would be nice features to have on a new house. And uh, there was discussion along the way, and maybe a few times at least, about price. So if we would do it this way, what would be the price? And if we would do it an option two or a different option, what, how would the price compare? There was never any discussion about whether or not there would be a foundation to our house. We never talked to the architect and the builder and asked him, we would like to have a price for our house without a foundation or with one. 
That was never part of the discussion. Any construction, anybody with any kind of understanding of construction understands the importance of a foundation. Foundations are important. And in construction, that's a foregone conclusion. It's a non-negotiable. I've made the decision to um, preach through the books of First and Second Peter when it's my turn to preach here at Weavertown the next little while. And today I'd like to launch that study um, into the books of First and Second Peter. It was written by a man whose name means rock, Peter, a.k.a. Rocky, Simon Peter. And Jesus gave him that name, as we'll discover. Peter was one of the earliest followers of Jesus Christ. I've decided to entitle this first sermon in this series of sermons by using the first word of the book of First Peter. The first word of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, fairly simple title. So if you have your Bibles open, let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1. And uh, in verse 1 of chapter 1 Peter 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. I want to look at several uh, things today in the sermon. It's an introductory sermon as I see it. Today we're going to look at the author of the book, and Peter, who he was, what he became, and I want to give you a few thoughts that are outstanding to me about what he wrote in these books. So we'll talk about his background, his calling, and the changes that he, took, that he made in his life. And then, of course, uh, looking at a few themes of the books of First and Second Peter. <clears throat> Who was he? Peter, that's how we know him. But that was not his original name. Perhaps we remember his original name. His birth name was Simon. Simon. Fifty times in the four Gospels, Peter is referred to as Simon. He was known by at least some of the disciples some of the 12 disciples seem to have been sort of a group of fishing buddies. There may have been up to seven of them. And uh, it seems as if Peter was perhaps the CEO, at least the owner of at least part of the fishing business. And it's possible that there were multiple um, independently, privately owned fishing businesses. <clears throat> I'm pretty sure that Peter owned at least part of the business because when Jesus 
preached to the 5,000, fed the 5,000, and they launched out into the water a bit to keep from crowding Jesus into the water. It says that they used Peter's boat. Interestingly, the name Simon means one who hears or listener. Um, Some Bible scholars would go on to say that the word Simon also carries the idea of something that is shifting, unstable. Who was Peter? Well, first of all, he was a fisherman. I've already told you that. He was born in a town called Bethsaida. And it was a town on the, close to the shore of the sea, sea of Galilee, the Lake of Galilee. And later we see that Peter is a resident of Capernaum, which was another town in the area. And his occupation was fishing. We know from the scriptures that he had a brother named Andrew, and he had a dad whose name was Jonah, or Jonas, or John, depending on what translation you have. His Hebrew name was Shimon Bar Yonah. I'm not Hebrew, but I think I can sort of pronounce it the way, something like that. Our English version would be Simon Bar-Jonah, and that simply means Simon, son of Jonah, was very common in that time and in that culture to carry your father's name as part of your name. For instance, if you look at the Gospels, you can see it showing up. There was a disciple whose name was Bartholomew. There was a blind man who was asking Jesus to heal him. His name was Bar Timaeus. At Jesus' crucifixion, the toss-up was Jesus or Barabbas. It means son of. Bar means son of. Currently, in Jewish culture, they would use the word ben. It's the same, it's the same idea. Simon, son of Jonah. Jesus referred to him numerous times in that way. So Simon was his birth name. It was the name that the disciples and the people of that time knew him by. But at the first, one of the first times that Jesus, right around the time of his baptism, Peter seems, or at least some of the other disciples, seem to have been followers of disciples of John the Baptist, And uh, when John made that transition, as it were, there in John chapter 1, he said, this is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus, it says, Peter, Peter seems to have been present at that incident, and it says that Jesus looked on him. And that simply means that it carries the idea of seeing through him. He recognized Peter for who he actually was. And maybe not so much what he actually was, but what he would yet become. And Jesus, in John chapter 1, says, he said, your name is Cephas. And we have to understand at this point that the 
culture of that time was different than ours. We live pretty much um, knowing one language. Some of us know parts of more than one or parts of a second. But in that time, there was a, it was at the tail end of the Greek empire. The Roman Empire was already uh, present and was reaching its zenith. So there was the Aramaic language, and there was the Greek or Latin language that was at least the intellectual language of that day. And then there was Hebrew, if you were a Jew and lived in the um, area of the nation of Israel, you were familiar with at least three languages. And probably many of the people of that time could get along or speak fluently up to three languages, perhaps more. And so Jesus called him Cephas, and that's Aramaic for stone, rock, a.k.a. rocky. So we know from Scripture also that Peter was, was married. His wife is mentioned in Mark. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, it mentions that Peter was married. There is some real sketchy speculation. I'm going to give it here. Just remember what I said. It's sketchy and it's speculation. But the, after Jesus' death and resurrection, the morning of the resurrection, which was Sunday morning, there were two disciples that made their, a trip out of Jerusalem and headed to the nearby town of Emmaus. And Luke chapter 23 records that account, and it says that one of the names of the disciples, or one of those walkers, one of those disciples' name was Cleopas. And it goes on to say that when Jesus revealed himself, or when it became known to them that they had just spent time with the resurrected Jesus, they hurried back to Jerusalem, and the report was that Jesus is alive, and he appeared to Simon. The speculation is that Cleopas was actually Mrs. Peter. And the speculation is that Jesus had taken a relatively long walk with Peter and his wife. The Bible does not say that, so keep that in mind. Peter was, without question, a leader among the twelve. For instance, every time in the New Testament there are four lists of the apostles, the disciples, the earliest followers of Jesus Christ, and the names are never in the same order. But in all four of those lists, Peter is mentioned first every time. Peter is always listed first. Maybe it's because he was the oldest one. I think many Bible scholars would feel that there's a possibility that Peter may have been the oldest one in that day, in that culture, maybe in the culture that we still live in. Um, age carried some weight, but for whatever reason, Peter's name is always listed first. And we can see he was a leader of the twelve during the time of the Gospels in Jesus' ministry on earth. 
He was the leader in the book of Acts. The first 12 chapters, Peter is easily the most dominant figure. He is the leader of the church. He's the one who starts things. He's the one who initiates things. He's the leader of the pack, and the people follow after his leading. There is more written about Peter in the four Gospels than any of the other followers. And I would suggest that, arguably, there is more written about Peter than all the other disciples combined. In fact, Peter's name is mentioned more frequently in the four Gospels than any other person, any other name than Jesus, Jesus Christ himself. But it's important for us to understand that before Peter was a leader, he was first a follower. He was first and foremost a disciple. The term disciple appears 245 times in the Gospels, and it's referring specifically to the 12 early disciples, the early followers of Christ, the people who Jesus called to be his disciples. You know what a disciple is? Well, technically it means a student, a pupil, a learner, somebody who is mentored by someone, who is taught, who, or who has a teacher. In that day, and still to this day, there were rabbis. And the rabbis would make their way around traveling, worshiping, doing what rabbis do, but there were people who, were, who they mentored. So this was not unusual at all for Jesus as a rabbi or a master to be traveling and have mentees, people that were being mentored by Jesus. In this case, there were 12. So a disciple means a learner. It would be someone who would follow a rabbi or a teacher. He would take notes. He would listen to what was said, and he would apply it. But when Jesus describes discipleship in the Gospels, it is really fascinating and interesting to see how Jesus describes discipleship. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, he says, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Let's tear this verse apart just a little bit. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Now let's just stop with that. We live in America. How many people do you know who consistently and regularly deny themselves? We live in a culture of personal rights. We live with this sense of entitlement. I deserve this. I earned this. It's something that I need. It's something that I worked for. How many people do you know who deny themselves? Denying ourselves is convictingly foreign in our way of thinking. And then he goes on and he says, take up your cross. That sounds painful. Well, that's what Jesus said. Take up your cross daily, he says. That sounds kind of fanatical. Sounds very radical. How many people do you know who are true followers of Jesus Christ, according to that definition? But I think that's where we need to begin. 
That's where we need to ask ourselves, am I truly a disciple? Am I living in a state of self-denial? Am I taking up the cross? Am I giving up my will for his, like Jesus did to his own father? Am I doing this daily? Am I truly following Jesus Christ? That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Well, there's more things we know about Peter. We can see in the stories, in the Gospels, that Peter was impulsive, impetuous would be another synonym. Something that means that he was quick to speak, he was rash, he was um, uh, yeah, impulsive with his actions and impulsive with his words. He was strong-willed. He was the guy who, when Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die, they're going to kill me in Jerusalem. And he says, it is not going to happen like that. Peter was the guy who was, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and the Sanhedrin and the soldiers came out to arrest Jesus, Peter drew a sword and cut off the ear of a guy named Malchus. He was a servant of the high priest, the Bible says. I suggest to you that Peter was not aiming for the ear. But Peter just had bad aim. I think he was reacting to what was happening and being a fisherman, not a swordsman, he missed his target and got the ear instead. We also know that Peter was very self-confident. John chapter 13, uh, he says to Jesus, he said, I will lay down my life for your sake. I'll die for you. He was also prideful. Peter was the guy who said, Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. He's not bashful about making that statement. And later on, when Jesus was in the upper room and Jesus goes to wash the feet of the disciples, he confronts Jesus and he said, you are not going to wash my feet. It was just pride. We also know that Peter, Peter struggled. He struggled with legalism. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul confronted him about that. We can see Peter struggling with hypocrisy at various points in his life. But you know something? All of these things are things that cause us to, that cause us to feel connected to Peter. We can see these things in our own lives. And it causes us to realize that he was human. And it makes him feel relatable. Peter was also very tender-hearted. At the transfiguration of Jesus, Peter impulsively, and in the heat and the excitement of the moment, he said, let's make three tabernacles, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. 
There's a lot of ways to look at that, but I think it gives us a little picture of Jesus' desire to honor Jesus and Elijah and Moses. We can also see Peter's tenderheartedness at the time of Jesus' trial and the betrayal of Judas um, toward Jesus. And Jesus is in the judgment hall, and Peter and others are gathered around this smoky fire. Peter denied Jesus three times. I think he was concerned about his own safety. I don't really blame him. I admire him for his tenacity in being present in the first place. But he denied Jesus three times. He denied his association, and he did so with, um, by swearing, it says. But Jesus, when Peter denied him for the third time, the rooster crowed, and the Bible says that Jesus looked over at Peter, sort of that same idea that he saw through him. He saw who Peter was. He saw what he could become, who he actually was. And the text tells us that Peter went out and wept bitterly. He was tenderhearted. He didn't justify his actions. He didn't blame his actions on other people. He just took responsibility for what he had done. Throughout the Gospels, you see interaction between Jesus and Peter. I've already named several of them. There is much more, much more conversations recorded between Jesus and Peter than any of the others. Perhaps as many between Peter and Jesus as the others combined. Why is this important? Well, I want to point that out because many of the lessons that Peter seems to have learned Lessons that he received from Jesus are lessons that stuck with him. First and Second Peter were written nearly 30 years after Jesus' ascension, after Jesus went back to God the Father. Peter writes this around 30 years later, and we can see some of those specific lessons that Peter learned, that Jesus taught Peter while he was here on the earth. And as we go through the books of First and Second Peter, I invite you, I would encourage you to, to find those, to locate those spots that connect to stories from the Gospels or the Acts. I'm going to try to do that as I go through throughout the uh, series of sermons. <clears throat> Peter died, the best of our knowledge, in the late 60s A.D. It may have been 67 or 68 A.D. And some of you are probably aware that the historians and Bible scholars tell us that Peter died by crucifixion. It was a fairly common way for Romans to execute people. You didn't come out of crucifixion alive. It was a brutal and terrible way to die. 
Peter died by crucifixion. Historians and Bible scholars say that he died in Rome. And they tell us that when he was led to the hill to be, or the place of crucifixion, Peter begged the executors to crucify him upside down. And the Bible scholars and historians say that that's how Peter died. He felt unworthy to, be, to die like Jesus in the same manner that Jesus died. And so they crucified him upside down. And tradition and historians and Bible scholars say that Peter's wife died the same way on the same day. I want to shift now and look at what Peter becomes. We can see the change in Peter. I think it's one of the best parts of this sermon. We can see the change in Peter. It gives me hope. And it gives me hope for, for you all, frankly. Um, it, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's something that I can easily hang on to. We can see the change in Peter. It's a blessing. Notice what it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. You know, he wasn't always an apostle. It's not something that he was born into. He, be he became an apostle by his choice, by a series of choices that he made. Let's look at some of these changes. There's three stages, I suggest, that Peter um, encountered through his life. First of all, there was a name change. Secondly, there was a status change. And there was a heart change. And I suggest that the heart change came along the way. Maybe specifically at one incident, which I'll point out to you. First of all, a name change. Now, it's not particularly uncommon through the Bible in the Old and New Testament to see that people's names were changed for some reason or another. Names at that time were much more important based on what they meant or the definition of one's name had something to say about that person and their life and their trajectory. So that's not particularly uncommon. All the way back in Genesis, Abram's name was changed to Abraham. And there's others in the, book of, in the books of the Old Testament where it mentions the same person and he, he shows up at one time or another and you realize that it's the same person, but he has a different name and that's why. God changed Abram's name to Abram because Abraham reflected his trajectory and what he was to become. Jesus also seems to change some names along the way. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Jesus, for some reason, changes their name to the sons of Thunder. And that at least came about partially because of James and John's desire 
Well, they were, they were traveling and they came to the city of Samaria and they were rejected or there was negative interaction there and James and John come up to Jesus and they said, why don't we just nuke these people? And Jesus um, criticized them or confronted them and from that point on, they were the sons of thunder. I believe that it was Jesus who changed Levi's name to Matthew. Don't have the time to go into that. That's interesting. And here in the story that we're looking at today, Simon's name is changed to Peter. And I've already mentioned that along the way. In John chapter 1, John chapter 1, verse 40, we have the uh, incident. And uh, actually, I'm not going to take the time to turn to that. I've already sort of talked to that about that. In John chapter 1, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. John the Baptist has disciples. He's also sort of a rabbi, a master, a teacher. And Andrew, for sure, at least Andrew was one of Jesus, or one of John the Baptist's disciples. And he goes to Simon, Peter, and says, we have found the Christ. And so Simon Peter's introduction to Jesus was as a result of his brother Andrew introducing him. I think it's possible that these men probably knew each other or knew of each other. I don't think that the region of Galilee was that large or that isolated. I think it's very possible, probable, that these people may have to some extent, grew up with each other. Most likely, Jesus was maybe about 10 years older than them, or maybe more than that, I'm not sure, but in that range. So if you just picture that, that would be sort of typical for a rabbi to have mentees who were 10 to 15 years younger than he. So let's just imagine that Jesus was about 30, and Peter was maybe 17 or 18 to 20, and the rest of the disciples possibly younger than that. And Jesus looked on him and he says, Simon, son of Jonah, you shall be called Cephas. It means a stone, not just a little pebble, but maybe a fist size, a large, um, a decent sized stone is what they would call, not necessarily a boulder, but a stone, not a pebble. Cephas, like I told you before, is Aramaic. The Greek is Petros, Peter, which is what we use when we talk about Peter, Petros. Jesus is saying, Simon, That's what you are naturally. Naturally, you are shifting. Naturally, you are a person who observes and hears and listens and takes things to heart. But you're going to be, you're going to become something supernaturally. You're going to be a rock. I like that. Interestingly, even after the name change, we see Peter named frequently in the Gospels by the writers. Peter doesn't have a gospel, I remind you. 
least not in the Bible canon. And uh, the disciples, the writers of the Gospels, frequently call him Simon. It was something that I think they were used to calling him that. And uh, if I were to change my name, for example, I think it would be easy for you to think of me as Dave or David for a while, even after the name change takes place. So I think that's sort of what was happening. It was his birth name. <clears throat> it's also very interesting to note throughout the Gospels when Peter is acting like his old self, or when he's acting like Simon. Jesus calls him that. And he talks to him using the name Simon. For instance, in a time where Peter was acting like Simon, and he's um, using very strong language to say that he is never going to deny Jesus. Even if everybody else forsakes him, he will not forsake him. He is, he is not going to deny Jesus in Jesus' wildest dreams. And Jesus says, Simon, Simon. He says it twice. He said, Satan desires to have your heart. And you're going to be sifted like wheat, he says. The second notable time is after the resurrection, when Jesus, when Jesus' prediction had actually come true, and Simon had denied him, Simon Peter had denied him three times, and Jesus reinstates him, which we're going to talk about just a little later, and he confronts him three times, and he says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He doesn't call him Peter, he calls him Simon. I think it's interesting. I think those two names, Simon and Peter, sort of represent the two sides of his character. It represents the things that Peter struggled with as he went about his life. Sometimes he was a listener. Sometimes he was a hearer. Sometimes he was a person that was taking things to heart. And sometimes he wasn't. Sometimes he was strong as a rock. He was something that would hold things together and hold things up. There was other times where he was more weak than that. He struggled like we do. But Peter had a name change. Simon, Peter. And then there was the status change. From disciple follower, learner, pupil, to apostle. The word apostle means someone who is sent out. It means somebody, it carries the idea, it denotes a commissioning, or some. it's more than a mentee. He is now, a, a, an apostle is, carries the idea of being ment, mentor to someone else. So Peter and the other disciples, but Peter included, became an apostle of Jesus Christ. The Greek word picture here, and I think I've mentioned it before, that Greek is interesting in the fact that it uses word pictures, sort of like our Dutch or German language does too. And the word picture for apostle carries the idea of a picture of a fleet of ships, a fleet of ships that are going out on a mission. They have a, they're charting a course, they've, they're representing a kingdom, 
And that's the idea of the word apostle. When Peter uses that word, that's the picture that is to be associated with it. So the disciples, the 12 disciples, are going to become apostles. And in Matthew chapter 10, um, yeah, in Matthew chapter 10, let me just uh, turn to that. It's very interesting. I think it's uh, important enough to uh, read this to you. And chapter 10, Jesus called the 12 disciples to him uh, in verse 1, and he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of diseases and all manner, all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. And verse 2, notice that. He says, now the names of the 12 apostles are these. Jesus sent them out. He commissions them, and they are changed from disciples to apostles. I want to point out a few things that I think about the word apostle. It's not a name or a title that we hear every day, and, but in certain circles and in certain churches, perhaps they have people who are designated as an apostle. I think the Bible uses the word apostle in at least two ways. There's a real narrow sense, I think, where the Bible uses the word apostle to describe talking about the 12 apostles. Peter, James, John, all of that list. In the narrow sense, those were the apostles. They were the ones who witnessed Jesus' earthly ministry. They were the ones who walked with him. They, in the narrow sense, those are the 12 apostles. In a wider sense, there are others who are also called apostles in the New Testament, such as um, Timothy, I think, is called an apostle, uh, Paul, um, and probably several others who are called apostles. In the wider sense means, again, somebody that's sent, somebody that's commissioned, somebody that's designated to mentor and lead. <clears throat> but this man, Peter, is a personal friend of Jesus, and he is personally commissioned by Jesus to, to do what he did. Three times, however, Peter denied him. And I think that brings us to the third change that we see here, and that's the heart change that we see throughout Peter's um, time here on earth, or his time with Jesus brought heart change. Immediately after the resurrection, Jesus frequently made appearances to um, his disciples and the people that were uh, concerned about Jesus and who were believers in Jesus. And several of those appearances involved Peter. Probably the most touching one is there in the shore of Galilee after Peter says, I'm going fishing. And he was joined by, I'm not sure if it says six or seven others, perhaps it was the old fishing group the buddies who decided that they're going back to fishing, at least for that night. I don't know if it was more than that, but they were fishing. And they fished all night and caught no fishes. And Jesus, they're coming to the shore. It's morning. Fishing is, I mean, it's done for the day or the night. And Jesus is on the shore. He is not immediately recognized by the disciples, but he already has a smoky fire. 
He already has fish on the fire. He's grilling them. And as they come closer, he says, cast your net on the other side, as the children's song says. Now, I'm guessing that boat was probably not much wider than this pulpit. What difference would it make if the net is strung out over the left side or the right side? Probably almost none. But it was important for Peter and the apostles, the disciples, to fish off the side that Jesus told them. And when they cast their net on the other side, their little boats were full of fishes. And it was a repeat miracle, and they immediately knew that it's Jesus. And there around that smoky fire, Peter is reinstated. There's a lot of similarities between the other smoky fire where he denied Jesus and this smoky fire where he is reinstated. And Jesus very lovingly and very kindly, very tenderly reinstates Peter. And he asks him a question three times. You know what the question is, don't you? Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And our English translation is um, fine, but the Greek uses different words there for the word love. You may have known that too. So Jesus asked him, do you love me? And especially at least a third time, Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I am very fond of you. That's exactly what the word means. And after each declaration of love for Jesus, Peter gives him a commissioning Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Jesus said, feed my sheep. And the last time he said, take care of my sheep. If it wasn't already awkward asking the same question twice, Jesus did it three times. Feed my, my lambs. Feed my sheep. Tend my sheep. He says, Peter, I'm entrusting to you one of the most precious things that I know and I have, and that is the flock of, for whom I died. I'm not only making you a fisher of men, but I'm calling you to be a shepherd of sheep. I can't help but wonder if that's going through Peter's mind in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2, 3, and 4. You can, you can look at it there where he talks about instructions to elders and leaders. He says, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not being lords, but being examples to the flock. And verse 4, when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory, and so on. We'll cover that when we get to that. Because of that heart change, Peter goes on to preach the sermon on the day of Pentecost. And 3,000 people are added to the church that particular day. And there were days following where there was, again, large groups of people that were added to the church 
Peter is the one who shows up at Cornelius' house. He is a Roman centurion, a Gentile. And the Jews had this thing about Gentiles. But Peter goes to Cornelius' house. He preaches the gospel. And Cornelius and his entire household are born again, filled with the Spirit. And it becomes an event that changed the history of the church at that time and since. In Acts chapter 15, Peter is there at the Jerusalem council addressing the crowd. Now in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 13, it seems to indicate that this, at least the book of 1 Peter, perhaps 1 and 2 Peter, were written from Babylon. And Mark was present with Peter. Perhaps Mark was the scribe, and Peter just dictated while Paul or while Mark actually wrote or transcribed what Peter said into the books that we know as First and Second Peter. Babylon, as we know, is not super close to Rome, where Paul, uh, where Peter died. And these books were the books, at least of 1 Peter, was written to the strangers, according to chapter 1, verse 1, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, if you punch, if you type these names into your GPS, they won't show up. They no longer exist. But it seems as if Peter is going from east to west, and he's going through that region. It's modern-day Turkey. And we don't have the story of Peter's impact on that region. We don't know what Peter's impact was on that region. But if you're thinking along with me, you realize that the seven churches in about A.D. 90-ish or late 80s, which would have been about 20 years after this passage was written, there were flourishing established churches in that region, in that area. Modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. We don't have the story of Peter's impact. I'm guessing there was some impact. And these were places where the Jewish believers and believers from all over the world were dispersed, uh, fleeing persecution. If you're thinking with me, if, if it's AD 67 or 65 in that range, um, the forces of Rome are gathering around Jerusalem. Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. The handwriting is on the wall. And the Christians are leaving Jerusalem, and they're scattering to some of these areas. Apparently, Peter was one of them. I want to just talk a, a little bit about this declaration of Peter. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 16 to 18, it was the text that was read before the sermon, and I'm circling back to that, and the thought, the idea of foundations. The first time that Jesus used the word church, the first time church, the word church is mentioned in the Bible is in this text right here. It was a conversation with Peter. It was at Caesarea Philippi. 
And Jesus asks his, his disciples sort of a harmless, seemingly random question. And he says, who are people saying that I am? And they rattled off um, a list of names that people were uh, seeming to assume or surmise that Jesus was, or he was impersonating the power of these people. And he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, the impulsive one, says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He was correct. And I'd like to say that this is a foundation of Peter's life. It should be the foundation of all of our lives. It is the foundation that the church is built on. And I want to show you just what, yeah, Peter gets a response from Jesus, and he says, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. Simon, son of Jonah, flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my father. This is not something that you just came up with on your own. It's been revealed to you. It's been impressed on you. It's something spiritual that's going on here. And he says, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. <clears throat> Again, looking at the Greek, it helps us understand this passage. So Jesus is sort of reiterating the name change to, to Peter. He says, Simon, son of Jonah. And he says, he continues, he says, Thou art Peter. Petros, a rock, maybe a large rock. And he says, upon this rock, Petra, that's boulder. That's not a, a stone that you carry around. Upon this boulder, Jesus is saying that the confession is what the church is built on. He is not saying that the church is built on Peter. I'd like to submit to you, if the church is built on Peter, we're all in trouble. But the church is built on Peter's confession. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was Peter's foundation, I believe. We can see it throughout his life. Even, even in the times of his failings, Peter very quickly comes back to that same foundation. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's the foundation that's imperative for all of us to have. We need that foundation. I need that to be the foundation of my life. No other foundation. Paul says, other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. In the book of 1 Peter, numerous times, Peter comes back to this and he calls Jesus the chief cornerstone. He says that we are living or lively stones. Other, yeah, he comes back to this idea of foundations throughout the books of First and Second Peter. I want to quickly go through this list, some themes in First and Second Peter that we're going to discuss as, as I study and preach, as we study together. I'm inviting you to join me in this. Themes in First and Second Peter. Now, this might perk you up, but the word suffering is mentioned 15 times in this book. And the reason that might perk you up is because you're probably going through something. 
suffering. He talks about suffering and the will of God. He talks about suffering unfairly. He talks about the suffering of Christ. Fifteen times the word suffering is used, and there are eight different Greek words that are used for that. So there's a lot about suffering in this book. He teaches, he talks about how to live victoriously in the midst of hostility without getting bitter. He teaches in this book about how to live in the here and now as we wait for the coming of Jesus Christ. How, how do we live today in light of what's to come? He talks about God's foreknowledge. He talks about our eternal inheritance. He describes heaven and what it's like to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. He talks about holiness. There's a clear call to holy living in this book. He talks about behavior and call, and there's a call to excellent behavior, not just acceptable or borderline behavior, but what's excellent, pursuit of what's excellent. The books of First and Second Peter talk about the responsibility, our responsibility to human government. He talks about the marriage relationship and how that should look. Peter, first and second Peter talk about how to defend the faith and, and more. He talks about the second coming of Jesus Christ in Second Peter chapter three. As I close now, I just want to again circle back to this thought and the importance of having a proper foundation. And I ask you this question: Is your foundation solid? Do you have the foundation that Jesus said his church will be built on? Is that your foundation? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He is the Savior that I need. He is the grace that I need. We're to build our lives on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ. As I went through the sermon here, I pretty much covered 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. And as I close here, I'd like to just give you my goal as I study and preach. And it's a prayer that I have for you as listeners. And that is the last verses of 2 Peter chapter 3. I talked about the first verse, and now I close with the last verses. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. That is my prayer. If you're able, I invite you to uh, kneel as we pray. <clears throat> Lord, our Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We pray that you would help us to um, be soft and yielded to your word and your spirit. We pray that we would be impressed by uh, what the scripture teaches us. And I pray that this morning's sermon would be a means of, of doing that for all of us, drawing our hearts to God, drawing our hearts to your word, allowing your spirit to mold and, and move and ultimately change us, that we would be 
changed into the image, transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And uh, thank you for the illustration of Peter and his willingness to be yielded, his willingness to be changed and to have that foundation. I pray that it would be strong and realized in our lives, not only today, but in this coming week, that we would yield ourselves to you. We commit ourselves and this service, the rest of this service to you, our time of fellowship and the rest of our activities to you today. We commit it all to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.